anyone have any questions or comments about what I've talked about so far this morning? Yes. When you're talking about stage seven and, and other things start to come up, you're not truly one pointed at that point, right? Because you're aware of the breath and these other things come up. Well, in, in stage seven, we, you know, single pointedness continues to be refined. You know, so it's not that there's one particular point. Say, okay, you're single pointed there because in the uh, in the seventh stage, you we say you're single pointed because it's dr you're dramatically more exclusive in your focus than you have been up to that time. And then uh, that just continues to be more refined as you go along. But it's not, it's, you know, short of being in a, in a kind of trance, you know, some yogis can go into a trance and be buried in a box underground or something like that. Um, and actually that's, uh, that kind of absorption is also called uh, nirvana samapati or, or uh, cessation absorption in the uh, in the Pali tradition. Uh, there, you're so so single pointed that you're absolutely oblivious to anything else. But uh, everywhere in between, uh, you know the. There, there is some degree of awareness of, of multiple things, but to think, but to think in those terms is not really to understand the the, the gist of single pointedness. Is now, there was one uh, I can't remember who it was. There's one of the traditional Burmese meditation teachers who tried to explain single pointedness using uh, the example of uh, a, a, a mountain range, and uh, you have one peak that stands up above the rest. You know, he used that as, and you can focus on that and you can ignore the rest, and that's that's what he means, what he uh, defined as single-pointed. So in the seventh stage, you're aware of the breath, yes. Uh, you're aware of these other sensations and things that arise. There are, as I say, thoughts coming that you hear in the background. Uh, somebody makes a loud sound or coughs, you hear that. So it, it's it's not single pointed to the extent that you're not aware of any of that. And uh, it's not that you can't have thoughts because I, you know I said you can have uh, you might be having the thoughts of doubt, and you do have thoughts that are in terms of uh, how you might adjust your practice. So there are, are thoughts taking place that aren't just in, in the distance. They're actually guiding your behavior, influencing the way that you direct your attention, making decisions, you know, for example, whether maybe you think it's appropriate to uh, make some change in your practice. But the sense that it is different than what you ever experienced before is that before that there were always there was always something else in your awareness, and usually quite a quite a bit of other stuff present in your awareness. So that in the sixth stage, where we would say a person is working to 
achieved single-pointedness, but they haven't achieved it yet. They are they are aware of a variety of body sensations and sounds and and the and thoughts uh, almost uh, almost continuous uh, thought of some kind or another, in the, even though it's in the periphery of their awareness, and that's what's changed. It. And that's what you notice if you you do the experience in the whole body of the breath practice and you come back to the notice to the nose. You notice that there's there's no thoughts for a while, and it's a real big difference from what there was before. So you can call it relative single pointedness. Okay, but it becomes even more refined as you go along. So, but if we if we attach a, an expectation to it, it's too rigid or overdefined. That's not realistic. Other questions? Okay, I I was describing for you the variety of things that come at this particular juncture in, in the development. And I'm gonna put them all together here. When when this whole process has run its course, then the bizarre and uncomfortable sensations and movements will have ceased. If you have an illumination phenomenon, it will become something that is, is steady and familiar and non-distracting. And if there is an auditory phenomenon, it's something that is, as I say, <coughs> illumination. It's steady, it's familiar, and it's non-distracting. Whether it's a buzz or whether it's the sound of a choir of angels in the, in the distance, you know, you just come to that place of, well, it's there. And it, and it does serve sort of as a, as, sort of as a buffer between you and uh, other sensations when, when it's there. Uh, so that you would be aware still of very loud sounds, but uh, it, it, but it actually has to sort of penetrate through the the humming in, in your ear before you you hear it. It has to be really distinct and unusual and, and, and uh, stand out enough to notice. But even even if it enters your awareness, it, it enters and passes through without, without your mind particularly reacting to it. With the sensations of your body, they are, as I say, there's, there's a stillness and a pleasantness, and um, it allows you to basically disregard your body. Your body is just this pleasant sensation in the background. Now, one of one of the characteristics of, of the change in body sensation I'll mention. I mentioned it yesterday, and I'll just clarify where that fits into it. Uh, you may still perceive yourself as sitting in the position you started in, but it's not unusual to perceive yourself as in a different position. Very, very frequently, I, when I'm in deep meditation. I feel as though I'm standing up. 
so that might happen. Very commonly, people feel as though their body is is weightless, it's floating. You know, you really don't feel the, the pressure of the cushion against uh, your your legs and your buttocks. But it's even more than that, and so the, the body is so light that it's just floating in the air. Very often, if somebody tries to describe the way their body feels, it's more as though their body is, is empty and there's just, just this shell of uh, the shell of awareness of the body in space. a shell of, of <coughs> distinct pleasantness that defines the boundary of the body, but the body other than that seems to lack any sort of solidity. And if you do have a light phenomenon and you have your eyes closed, very often a part of the body awareness is, is that there, there is, it is suffused with this light. Uh, sometimes the light's coming from it. As a matter of fact, I find it very interesting that in religious iconography of all kinds of different religions all over the world. They show pictures of saints and holy people with light radiating from their body. And this is the con this is, you know, th this is a depiction of a meditation experience is what it is. Uh, and sometimes it's from the head and, you, you know, the idea of halos and things like that. I think this also comes from these kinds of meditation experiences. But the body... In essence, the body is about as non-distracting as it could be while you still are aware that you have a body and that it occupies space. And it is, and what awareness you have is pleasant. And you're not, you know, and all of your senses are in this very quiescent state. You can, when you're in this state, if you, you can direct your attention to the pressure of the cushion against your ankle if you want. If you want to just check to make sure, you know, my sense is still working, and have I fallen asleep and entered into a dream, you just direct your attention, boom, there it is. Or, you know, direct your attention towards hearing. And, you know, if, if there's traffic on the street, oh, there it is. But you come back into focus and it all just disappears. Um, the mental part of this is very interesting because your mind enters into a state of joy and that's accompanied by a feeling of happiness and I want to explain to you what I mean by a state of joy it's a mental state and in this particular mental state um well, you've all experienced a state of joy. Some things have happened that have put you into a state of joy. When you're in a joyful state of mind, you will selectively attend to those things in your environment, those phenomena, which are beautiful, attractive, interesting. So it has a very strong effect, very powerful effect on the... Uh, the way, what you attend to. When you have been joyful, you can't help but notice the flowers. And the sky is so beautiful today, and the green of the grass is just so lush, and the, the color of the trees, and the sound of the birds, and things like that. 
anything that you would normally experience as pleasant, you experience more so. Anything that you would normally experience as neutral, you will tend to experience as pleasant. I mean, normally, breathing in, breathing out, it's kind of a so what thing, but you know, when you are in a state of joy, it just feels so good just to be breathing. You know, even the sound of the traffic, oh, lovely, you know. When you experience meditation joy in a meditation hall, and the meditator next to you cough, your reaction is, oh, how nice. <laughs> unpleasant things, if they're only mildly unpleasant, may be, you know, neutral. You know, your, your attitude isn't as so it doesn't bother you. And even more extremely unpleasant things are experiences only being mildly unpleasant. This is what joy is. You've experienced joy. We experience joy when we fall in love. We experience joy when we get some wonderful good news that we've been waiting for. There's all kinds of things that cause us to experience joy. It's a state of mind, and you notice that when you have the state of mind of joy, it has an effect on the way you perceive all kinds of things, and, and until it disappears. Its exact opposite is the state uh, of sadness or, or grief. When you're in that state of sadness, Everything I said is reversed. You tend to notice, you don't notice what's beautiful, you notice what's ugly. You don't notice what's good, you notice what's broken. You notice what's wrong. And even the things that are pleasant don't hold the same, you know, same pleasurableness. And things that are not so strongly pleasant, they're just completely neutral. And Things that are would otherwise just be a little bit unpleasant are almost unbearable. So that's that. It's a state of mind, and then these are the two opposite states of mind: joy and, and then sadness, or joy and grief. So what happens in meditation, uh, together with all of these sensory changes, <coughs> is the mind enters a state of joy, and because the state of the mind is joyful. And because the sensations in the body are pleasant, and because even such neutral things as, as breathing and being alive are now pleasant, the, the state of mind and a state of joy in meditation is also a mind that's experiencing happiness. And this joyful state usually is very energetic very excitable. The mind is very is, is is very highly aroused. So this is what would happen with a person in the eighth stage. Uh, there's a this is called piti and sukha. These are two words. Uh, piti means literally joy. It's often translated as rapture, which is it's an absurd Victorian, it's another one of those Victorian translations from his Englishman that went to India. Uh, is often translated as rapture, but it really means joy, and you probably should call it meditative joy to distinguish it from, uh, from, the, more, from the joy of more ordinary mundane sources. Sukha means pleasure, and it, it refers to both bodily pleasure and mental pleasure, happiness. And these things that I've been describing to you 
if you read about them in books, <clears throat> where they're labeled as picky or rapture, they'll lump them all together. So that that picky, where in, in the descriptions in a, in a book on meditation, won't include just the mental state of joy, which is literally what it refers to, but it will refer to the illumination and the sounds and the smells and the tastes and the bodily pleasure. It will even be used to refer to the uh, energy currents and the electrical jolts and the itching and the burning and the sweating and the salivation and all of these other things. They all get lumped together under the term piti. Because in the end, when they've all, when the whole process is matured, all that's left is, is the is the piti, the state of joy, and the sukha, the bodily pleasure and the, and the mental happiness. But all of these other things that are concomitants, that they, you know, they, they come along with it in the beginning, uh, uh, are, are lumped together. So when you read about these elsewhere, it helps you to put it in perspective and understand it. <clears throat> now, it's said that there are five grades or degrees of the development of PT. In the seventh stage, if you're not a person like me who's so rigid that all you experience is tediousness, you likely experience uh, several of the earlier incomplete grades of the arising of PT. Uh, the first of these five grades is called uh, uh, What's it called? It's minor. The first is called minor PT. And that's where you have these various things arising in isolation. You may have just the feeling of creepy crawlies on your skin, and you may have just a bright light <coughs> that appears and shines and moves out around a little bit and then disappears. You may have just the sound. Or you may have a couple of these together. You can have just the you have just have a sudden brief experience of being joyful and happy. And it's like, ooh, well, that was nice. Where did that come from? Uh, that's minor PT. When <coughs> one or just a few factors, and they just last a short period of time. The next grade is called momentary, <clears throat> and that's where there will be more of them occurring simultaneously, and uh, they'll last a little bit longer. So you might have a feeling of joy and light, and at the same time, a feeling like an electrical current crawling around your skin, and then it passes away. Uh, it may not happen. When these things happen in isolation, minor momentary PD, there's no way to predict when they're going to happen. They just, they do and they go away. Sometimes they happen and sometimes they don't. Uh, and of course, the problem is not to get attached to them want to try to make them happen. The next grade is called uh, uh, wave-like. And this is where you'll have uh, most, sometimes all of these factors come together at once, and they'll reach a certain intensity, and then they'll sort of fade away, and then they'll come back again. So you'll meditate, and you'll feel the joy, and you might feel a lot of energy vibration in your body, or you might not feel the joy. I should mention a lot of times there's only the physical sensations and the joy just comes later. So you might have various kinds of physical sensations and a light and a sound and it becomes intense and fades away, comes back again. And so that would be wave-like. And 
it'll do this a few times and then it'll disappear. What's the name of the stone again? This wave, wave like. Wave. Wave, wave like. <coughs> so minor, momentary, and wave like. And then you have what's called uplifting. It's very intense. Usually, uh, it's very predominantly physical, but there, there is the, the, the component of joy is in there, uh, and happiness and pleasure. And you're just suddenly overwhelmed by this just huge, wonderful sensation of, you know, your, your body feels like it just lifts, lifts up off, off the cushion. And there's exaggerated stories about this, you know, yogis that claim that they have uplifting pity and they rise two feet off the cushion and everybody in the room attests that it's true that they did. They just floated there in midair. I've yet seen anything like that. But it feels like the body, you know, there is the lightness and the, the, the feeling is that you're floating and the sensation of pleasure is very strong. The fifth, the final stage is, is the fully developed, completed pity all these other extraneous things tend to fall away. And the completed stage of, of PT, which uh, you won't really experience or you won't experience for more than a, a brief period of time until you are able to sustain effortless concentration for a period. And that's the one I described a little while ago, where you have the joy and the happiness, the pleasure in the body. Uh, the, your senses are, as you would say, pacified. When, when with individual sense, there's no longer any internal visual imagery arising, arising because there's just this, there's just this inner light. In the auditory sense, you don't hear external things because there's just this internal sound. <clears throat> and in the body sense, you have, as I say, this sense of the body's presence in space, and it's pleasant, and it's very still, but um, it, it, it's very, it seems, it seems light and insubstantial, and it seem, may seem to be the source of this light. They're sort of a, you have a light body, sitting there in a light body, in a, in a very lightweight light body. Now, what does this, what does this seem to signify in terms of what's happening? <coughs> that, uh, as I said, the senses are fully pacified, and I think this means that the parts of the brain that usually process these kinds of sensory information have entered into a special state that really is conducive to, uh, to very, very stable uh, kind of mental activity with no physical distractions at all. The fact that there is joy and pleasure and happiness are just kind of bonuses along the way. But there is a lot of excitement and energy. So a person, a person is practicing in the eighth stage. Once you have effortless concentration, then you have all of these things coming up and you're basically coming to that place of having the fully developed PT and with all of its excitement and disturbance and, uh, and trying to get used to it. So 
there's a, a very important term that has that is used in, in the ancient literature that means unification of mind. And in a lot of the things that you might read or hear that in, in English translation or English writers about uh, meditation, unification of mind is treated as though it's a synonym for single-pointedness. Yet, it doesn't really make sense. But there's really these two terms, and they don't really apply to the same thing. I think unification of mind refers to that change that takes place that allows your concentration to be effortless. Your mind consists, as I said before, of many different mental processes. Many, many, many different mental processes. With different functions and different agendas. And until there is unification of mind, they are essentially trying to take you in different directions at the same time. That's why in the seventh stage, before you have effortless concentration, you need continued sustained vigilance and a certain degree of effort to sustain your single-pointedness. Because if you relax, some other part of your mind grabs the reins and you're off somewhere else. You're in this really nice, stable place, and boom, all of a sudden you're falling asleep or daydreaming, and how did that happen? So, my understanding uh, now of the term unification of mind is it's specifically referring to when all the different parts of your mind get on track with the same purpose, and instead of trying to take you somewhere else, they just, you know, if, if you're single-pointedly attending to the sensations of your breath, then they stop trying to take you somewhere else. That's all you're doing is single-pointedly attending to your breath. There's not all this internal competition and struggle taking place. And I relate this also to something else, too. There is, uh, in the field of psychology, uh, a particular state that has been studied and described called flow, which is characterized by joy and happiness. And if you read the descriptions of flow in the psychological literature and the textbooks, if you took them out of the context, you know, and actually I have paragraphs that I've done that. Take it, just take this paragraph out of a, a book on flow and by itself read it to somebody who is familiar with meditation and say, Oh, that's a description of, you know, so what is this? Oh, that's a description of Piti Sutta. Yeah, because it seems to be. But what flow refers to is the fact that we've all experienced it. When we become very absorbed in some activity that we enjoy, that we enter into a very happy state, we are oblivious to pretty much everything else. We all know what this is like. And flow has been studied in all kinds of people. Some people, uh, it's apparently it's very common among surgeons. Uh, surgeons get into a state of, uh, of flow and they get addicted to surgery. And then if something happens and they can't do surgery, it's like their, their favorite drug is taken away. Because you know, they go into the operating theater and they enter this state of flow and there's just joy and happiness. And, and you know, flow is really a good description for it. But, uh, you know, people experience it in, in sports. I, 
I wouldn't be at all surprised to find out that Tiger Woods plays golf in a state of flow. Uh, it can happen, all kinds of things, people doing favorite hobbies and so forth. And I think it's exactly the same thing. In meditation, we're coming to the same place. It's a unification of mind. A person in flow is a person in unification of mind. And in meditation, we can come to the same unification of mind. And when we do, we experience the same things happening. It's just that they, in general, tend to be much more intense. And so this then, go back to the question, so what's the value of developing single-pointed concentration on something like the breath? It is, first of all, to arrive at this uh, unification of mind, uh, at this state of effortlessness uh, that gives rise to a, a kind of meditative flow. Maybe that's what we should call PT, is meditative flow. Once you have, once you have effortless concentration, you no longer need to be single-pointed. Now you can continue to further refine single-pointedness. You can continue to use single-pointedness. Okay, you would be in the eighth stage of the ten stages I described. You can continue to use single-pointedness to further re refine your meditative flow state until you reach the state of samatha, the tenth stage. And, but you can also use single-pointedness to enter into what are called meditative absorptions. But you don't need to remain single-pointed at all. By using a fixed object, you've brought yourself to a state of, of wieldiness and malleability of your mind a state of mental stability that you can do just about anything you want with your mind. And so you could choose not to continue to be single-pointed at this point. When you have effortless concentration, you can develop a very expanded open awareness that allows you to just let anything that comes along, any sensation, any thought, pass through your mind. And you can regulate this, the stream of that. You, you know, it doesn't mean opening yourself up to the floodgates of everyday thoughts and sensation, but you can just open yourself up to letting, letting thoughts and sensations flow through your mind at a more gentle pace and investigate them as they do so. Your, your concentration can be mobile. Instead of single-pointed concentration, when you have effortlessness, you can practice what is called kanika or momentary concentration, which means that all, your concentration is only resting very briefly on any one thing. It's very, it's very mobile, so it can move from this to this to this. But the important thing is, however brief the period that you're resting on one particular thing, you're totally engaged with it. You can use this kind of concentration to investigate the processes that take place in your mind. The Buddha described a process called the uh, uh, links of dependent origination, which describes what's happening in our mind moment by moment. And you can actually follow that process link by link when you have this kind of concentration.
you can examine the arising and passing away of phenomena, either sensation or mental objects. And you can follow that arising and passing away very closely. Uh, you can begin to investigate what what is what lies in the space between two objects of consciousness, between when one passes away and before the next one arises. So the capacity that you have when you achieve effortless concentration is great, and at this point you can take up a variety of different uh, practices. The other thing that you can do, though, is you've almost achieved the, what's called the state of the unsurpassable mind, which would be the tenth state, the samatha state. So you're in the eighth stage, you have effortless concentration, you have a lot of uh, energy and excitement and disturbance of the mind because the PT is still too strong. But you can go ahead and continue to practice with the PT single-pointedly and let that, let that intensity die away. And this is this would be the ninth stage of the practice where you let it you keep allowing it to you 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 enter that state of meditative flow where the PT is very intense and you familiarize yourself with it, you bring the mind to stop reacting to it, and you just let it be. And you allow yourself to develop more and more tranquility and equanimity. Because that's what's present in the tenth stage. It isn't present in the eighth and ninth stage. And so the intensity of the piti and the sukha uh, subside. They don't disappear, but they, they subside. And the, uh, and the agitation that they produce disappears. And instead there's tranquility and equanimity. And then, of course, from the state of samatha, anything that you could have done uh, from the state of effortless concentration, you can obviously do even better from the state of samatha. So, just looking at this latter part of the process, and just to review what we're doing, we get to that place where we have directed and sustained attention, well-developed, and very powerful mindful awareness, but we've still got a constant stream of other activity taking place in our mind. So then, we move towards quietening that down, bringing our focus in much more closely. And then having done that, we come to this place of effortlessness. Kind of along the side, we get all the piti sukha and, and other things. And we actually have to work our way through those. But at the end of the process, what we're left with is this incredible ability to direct and control our concentration this very, very powerful mindful awareness. A mind that is extremely resilient because it's in a state of joy. And that has uh, profound tranquility and equanimity. Uh, as I said the uh, first night, this is the mind that has five of the seven requisite factors for achieving awakening. So if you haven't already become awakened by the time you get there, there's not much left to do to do to, to make the accident almost inevitable.
back to what I was talking about the first night of context, maybe this helps you to see how this 10-stage process really is a kind of base context for just about any other practice you've ever seen or heard of or know about. Yes? This is not one more practice to choose one from, choose from amongst all of the others. This is, all these other practices have this underlying assumption that you're not going to get lost in thoughts and daydream and mind wandering for long periods of time. But they never tell you how to get past that. And they have the basic assumption that you're not going to forget what you're doing over and over again. And they also speak to you as though it's obvious that you are aware of what's going on in your mind and the contents of your mind and you know what mindfulness means without necessarily ever really explaining how you, how you come to have that ability. So this really is a method for developing that. It's the method for having the tools you need to apply some of these other wonderful methods. No, nothing's obvious to everybody. If it's not obvious, if it's not obvious to you, and a lot of other people, it's not obvious to you as well. So, my training is with the Mahayana lineage, and so basically everything that we do, like our goal, is to um, it's to be compassionate to others mm -hmm. and serve mankind and and that means in our meditation yes. also, mm -hmm. which I'm certain you, you know all of those, but I'm trying to connect. I mean this is great for me. Mm -hmm. This is great for me. I I can't you know, <laughs> I can't feel anything but, but great when I'm meditating. But how does it benefit the people I work with, my own family, um, that's kind of where I really I need that connection because it's almost seeming self-indulgent. You could meditate for hours every day. You could do yoga. I do yoga too. I could do hour, hours of yoga every day. And that's really wonderful, but it's not where in terms of Tibetan Buddhism, that's not the ticket. It's not how you should be spending this precious life. Or rather, in my own mind, that's kind of where I, I come from. Mm -hmm. So I, I need that connection with how does all this benefit all of, you know, the rest of the world. Okay, good question. I'd love to answer that. It's a really good one to get into. Uh, the, the, the short answer is, this is the best thing you can do for everybody else in the world. But let's put that together. To get from here, being a self-cherishing worldling, to being a bodhisattva or a Buddha who can bring all beings to the place of being free from 
going from here to Chicago. And we're looking at only one part. When we're looking at the meditation, we're looking at only one part. Like, it may be the engine and transmission, but an engine and transmission by itself is never going to get you from Tucson to Chicago. You need the body and the chassis and the wheels and, and the brakes and everything else. But the other is true too. If all you had was the chassis and the wheels and the body of the car and you didn't have an engine and transmission and you wanted to get from here to there, you'd have to push it and you'd probably never make it. So the meditation practice is one part, but there is, there is a lot more to it than that. If all you did was meditation practice, uh, then you're, you're not going to achieve the Mahayana ideal. But as a matter of fact, you're not even going to succeed in the meditation practice. You won't get past probably the sixth stage, seventh stage at most. Um, meditation, in terms of the Buddha's teaching of the path to enlightenment, and I'll point out to you just, I know you know this, but I'll just repeat it, is the only way that you can really help other beings is through your own awakening. Okay. Everything else is nice, but you know it's like trying to bail out a flight with a teaspoon. It doesn't make much difference. But once you have awakened yourself, then your potential to fulfill the bodhisattva ideal becomes a reality. It makes that transition. <coughs> So, meditation is only one part of the path. The path is sometimes described as consisting of three components, virtue, meditation, and wisdom. And wisdom is both the uh, learning that you obtain that helps you on the path of virtue and concentration, uh, that puts you on the path to start with. The wisdom is also the uh, fruits of awakening that you realize as a result of the meditation. But the meditation is only one-third of the totality. These three are further subdivided into uh, what's called the Eightfold Path. And the virtue part is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The meditation part is right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. And the wisdom part is right view and right understanding. So all of these have to be present. Now, all of the other kinds of things that you can do are hidden in these other eight, but you need to you you, you need to dig a bit to find them. Let's take virtue to begin with. <clears throat> and First, I'll point out to you that without leading, leading a virtuous lifestyle, you won't be able to complete the meditation part of the path. Because as long as you engage in unvirtuous activities, you'll have a mind that is too agitated. If you, if you have a lot of discipline and a really good teacher and maybe a whole lot of good karma, like I say, you might get to the sixth or seventh stage, but 
what when you get to the seventh stage and instead of piti arising, instead of unification of mind, uh, and instead of effortlessness, the agitation of your mind due to your lack of virtue is going to prevent that from occurring. Piti may try to arise, and you'll experience, instead of some weird sensations, you'll experience a lot of really miserable and disturbing things that happen in your body. But you won't get past that. You, you won't get the blossoming of the, of the joy and the happiness and the effortless concentration that opens a gateway for the other practices. So the virtue has to be there. When we look at virtue, right speech, right action, right livelihood, this is all presented in terms of, you know, the thou shalt not kind of thing, although we don't use those as I shall endeavor to refrain from. And the things that we endeavor to refrain from are the things that will cause harm to others and to ourselves. And if we leave our level of understanding at that place, and it doesn't seem that we're uh, that we would really be following the uh, bodhisattva path at all. But if we re-examine those, we take the vow not to uh, to endeavor to refrain from uh, causing uh, harm or destruction of other beings. But if you begin seriously practicing that, it will readily evolve to the protection of other beings, not only not causing harm to them, but protecting protecting them and helping them. When we take a precept to refrain from uh, taking that which is not given, but that can also evolve into protecting the property of others and even into generosity, giving up those things uh, that uh, we're attached to and therefore uh, easing our own uh, inner affliction of attachment and, and desire and at the same time practicing generosity others. And we can go the same way through all, all of the precepts. And this has been done. The precepts were, the, the precepts in the Eightfold Path evolved into a description of uh, a practice of perfections. Uh, six in some schools and ten in others of perfections. But they all cover the same thing. And if you look at them, they fully encompass the Eightfold Path and they specifically identify virtue, uh, virtue, generosity, patience, uh, meditation in its different forms, both concentration and right effort. All of these things, when you practice them, they make your meditation easier and make the flow easier. They have a, they're tremendously helpful in terms of overcoming uh, doubt and resistance. So they really are all in there as a part of it. When we look at what right effort consists of, <clears throat> when it's spelled out by the Buddha, right effort is using mindful awareness to examine our mind and identify when there are uh, thoughts and mental states that are uh, rooted in un un the unwholesome uh, roots of desire and aversion and ignorance. And to when, when we find them present, to uh, 
find a way to eliminate them. And the way is through the practice of mindfulness. And then once we've eliminated them, to keep them from returning. And likewise, when wholesome, desirable mental states that are rooted in uh, generosity and loving kindness and wisdom arise, to, uh, to cultivate and sustain those mental states, and when they're not arisen, to kind of bring them into being. And so, if you're living in that way, if you're, if you're practicing right effort in the world, and you're, you're practicing the path of the Bodhisattva, and the Buddha grouped right effort together with right concentration and right mindfulness, and they are all collectively referred to as, uh, as the division of meditation or concentration. So this practice alone, <clears throat> this practice alone, it won't either uh, take you to the bodhisattva goal, or will you even be able to take this practice in isolation from the rest of the path and be particularly successful in it. <clears throat> but when you begin to, to do this practice, you acquire the tools that you need to do all these other things as well. You know, um, to have, to have the goal of following precepts and leading a virtuous life, it's a wonderful idea, but when we go to try to do it, we find it is much, much more difficult, right? All those habits, all that forgetfulness, all of that, oh no, I get it again, right? It's really hard to do. And you need mindfulness. You need, you need a mind that's trained and conditioned to be aware of what's happening within itself. And you need, that, that needs to be strong, and that needs to be familiar, and that needs to be something that you can evoke readily, just in order to be able to practice virtue, let alone any of the other practices of, uh, of the Bodhisattva. It allows you to remember to, to do them. But even more than that, it allows you to practice them in a way that is really fruitful. Because there is only the most limited possible kind of benefit that comes from disciplining yourself not to do something because it's a violation of a precept or a vow. I mean, that's at least better than going ahead and doing these things. That all, if, if all you're doing is disciplining yourself and restraining yourself, you're not doing anything at all about the root of these inclinations, then it's very, it's very limited. But how do we change these things? Other than, you know, if, if, if you're a person who has a lifelong habit of engaging in wrong speech of some sort, how do you overcome that? Well, mindful awareness is the most powerful medicine in the world. You don't really need to do anything other than learn to be mindful and then when those things are happening, to focus the full power of your mindful awareness on observing what's happening, how it makes you feel, how it affects others, and what its results are. As the Buddha said in the sutra where he describes training himself in this way as a bodhisattva, he said, 
uh, when I saw that these were present in my mind, uh, and being mindful of them and investigating them, I saw that they were an affliction to me. They were an affliction to others, that they produced nothing that was wholesome, and that they led me away from nirvana. And he says, conversely, of the, the positive things when they were present, that when, when I was mindful of these things and investigated them, I saw that they were a benefit to me, they were a benefit to others, and that they brought me towards nirvana. And so if the practice of mindfulness, if you learn how to practice mindfulness, is to basically bring that powerful light of conscious awareness to bear on what is actually happening, what is really happening in the here and now, and keep it on there as things unfold. When conscious awareness illuminates the reality of the source of your intentions, the uh, actions and speech that arise out of them, and the consequences that flow from that, when the power of conscious awareness exposes all of that to the mind, the mind reacts by ceasing to engage so readily in those same things. And then those lifelong habits begin to disappear. Because the part of your mind that, you know, using the example of, of unwholesome speech or wrong speech, the part of your mind that has a lifetime of habit behind it, believing it, it, it is causing you to engage in wrong speech because somehow it's been programmed to do that in the belief that it is in the service of the wholeness of what you are. It's in, it's in service of the five aggregates as a whole. It's in service of the self. That the reason this one isolated part of your mind keeps making you do that is because it unfortunately is conditioned to believe that this is the best thing for you to do under those circumstances. And the only way that you can change that is to put the light of consciousness on the behavior and on its roots and on its consequences. When you put the light of consciousness on that, then that part of your mind that's been the driver for this all the time gets the message, starts to see, oh, wait a minute, this is coming from a bad place, not a good place. And this is producing bad results, not good results. And all these different parts of your mind, the one thing they are, if they are anything at all, the one thing they are is logical. So if you can only give them the right information, they'll draw the right conclusions and they'll modify the way they react. So this is, this is how mindfulness, the cultivation of mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness in your life can help you to overcome all of these different obstructions and hindrances and afflictions. And then of course you follow this path and you have the you have what you need to achieve your own awakening. You understand the way reality is. And until then, you're what we might almost call it a make-believe bodhisattva. You, you know, you'd really like to be a person who's really doing things out of compassion for other beings. But it's all kind of an act that you're playing. 
But you see, what we call awakening is when your mind stops its storytelling, fabricating activity for long enough that, once again, the light of conscious awareness reveals something to it. But this time it's revealing to it the truth of the way things really are. And you come out of that experience realizing that that uh, there really is no difference between you and anyone else. And therefore, compassion is the, it's the natural, in a, way, in a sense, it's, it's the only, it's the only feasible way to function. So then you're a true bodhisattva. Because, because you know the truth. And then you're doing the only thing that you could do. Uh, yes, I could. It's three minutes to noon. How about we talk about the stages of awakening after lunch? Okay. <laughs> when your stomachs are full and you're nodding off.